Psalm 14. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? We spent some time looking last week at specifically verse 1. Sought to study that first part and try to get a good understanding of the first verse. Let's read the whole, the whole uh, psalm, verse 1 through 7. So Psalm 14, verse 1, the Bible says, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor, because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for your word. Lord, help us to be instructed and to know that this psalm is not to be a reference to a small group of people, but it is really a reference to all men in their natural condition. Lord, I pray that you'd help us as we uh, study the psalm that our hearts might be stirred by the truth of your word. Uh, Lord, help us as we examine the marks of those who are corrupt and those who are the regenerate. And Lord, by your Spirit, guide us into the truth. Help us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There is a, um, another psalm that stands with Psalm 14. That's Psalm 53. As a matter of fact, if you would read Psalm 53, it's almost word for word what Psalm 14 says, except for a few vari variations at the end of the chapter. I just came across... a. Um, little account of a pastor who entered a tavern where a man, wishing to embarrass him, rose and suddenly called out quite loudly, there is no God. The pastor went to him, calmly laid his hands on his shoulder and said, friend, what you have said is not all new. The Bible said that more than 2,000 years ago. The man replied, I never knew that the Bible made such a statement. The pastor informed him, Psalm 14, verse 1, tells us, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. But there is a difference between that fool and you. He quote, he, uh, his quote was modest, for he said it in his heart. He didn't go about yelling it out loud in the taverns. And as we looked at this psalm, we think of the fool, and let me remind us here as we made some observation about this first verse. I think it was important for us to spend the time because if we're not careful, we might take the first verse and our understanding of the whole psalm might be veiled because we immediately go and say, well, that's the atheist who says there is no God. 
And we've made some observation, the first of which is that the idea that there is no God is actually not new to the 21st century. Uh, this thought was prevalent during the time of David. He is the one that wrote this psalm. So evidently there were, in those days, fools who said there was no God. So the reason why we say that is because today there's this idea that those who are atheists, those who claim there are no God, are doing so because of science and because of research. And it's something that's new because now people are smarter than they've ever been. And they have the idea that this is based on intellect and it's not based on intellect at all. It's uh, as old as the Bible. The second observation we made is that we must make a distinction between the imaginations of men and the certainties of men. Uh, here, notice, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. That's what he wishes would be. It's not what is. The third observation we made is that the fool is the man who has made this decision in his heart and not in his mind. You see, it is his heart here that controls his thinking. Uh, the idea that there is no God does not spring from logic. It is the thought that springs entirely from the wishes and the wickedness of the heart. That's where the thought comes from. And the fourth observation we made is that this psalm is universal in its application. It is to be applied, notice, to all men. And we're going to see that tonight. This is true because of the reference of the psalm itself. But even when the Bible, specifically the New Testament, quotes Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, it quotes it in the same context that this truth applies to all men. Now, as we spend the time, let me just uh, run some review from last week just as a springboard um, because the message tonight builds on the message last week. But uh, this is not, when we looked at verse 1, this is not a person's reasonable judgment. Notice the psalm says, a fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. This is not a reasonable judgment. It is a man's imaginations, a man's wishes. Uh, it is not that he knows that there is no God, but rather it is that he wishes there were no God. Uh, such a thought, although unlikely, basically suits his fancy. Uh, the fool loves to be entertained by this thought that he can do as he please, pleases without an accountability. You see, that's what he wants. He does not regard God as the judge of his soul. And so his heart just wishes, if only there were no God, I could do what I want without guilt, without being in fear, and so on. And so uh, the fool does not say this here audibly. He says it in the secret recesses of his heart. That's what he wishes. As we observed in, first, in the first verse, he says they are corrupt. They have done abominable works. And here he says there is none that doeth good. Notice verse 2, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and see God. Verse 3 says, they are all gone aside. 
They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Not one. We see then that this psalm is applicable universally. If you hold your place here, we're going to revisit that, but I think it's important before we go and begin to dig in the psalm to understand why this is a universal application. Turn with me to Romans and chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. As you turn there, if you would read through the first three chapters of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is quite deliberate and clear in his approach. He is trying to prove something as he's writing to the believers at Rome, and he's trying to prove that all men are sinners. He's trying to prove that. He's trying to arrive at that. In the first chapter, he speaks in the sense of the Gentile world, those who are outside of God, those who deny the existence of God. But yet, there is a sense in all of them that although they know God, they glorified Him not as God, but they become vain in their imagination. Their foolish heart was, is darkened. They profess themselves to be wise, but indeed they become fools because they know there's a God, but they say there is no God. And he goes on to say and describe their lifestyle. And he says they know the judgment of God. And we might say that that's the Gentile world. Those who are outside of God. Those who are, according to Romans chapter 2, without the law. In the sense that they, it's not that they don't know the moral law, but they don't possess the Old Testament Scriptures as the Jews possess the Old Testament Scriptures. And so he says, they're guilty, they're all under sin. But then in chapter 2, he turns to the Jew and he says, but do you think that you're going to escape the judgment of God? He says, you do the exact same thing. Now the debate, Paul answers questions, well, then what is the benefit of the Jews? And he says, the benefit of the Jews is that they have received the oracles of God. They have the word of God. The Gentiles, on the other hand, they don't have the law. In Romans 2, he says, even though they don't have the law, they do by nature the things contained in the law. Uh, their thoughts, the while accusing or out excusing one another. And so they have the, the moral law of God written in their hearts, and so they have this sense of morality of right and wrong. That's the proof that there is a God, and that yet they violate what they know to be right and wrong. And so he arrives in chapter 3, and here's what the conclusion he makes. He's trying to show that both Jews and Gentiles, we might say both reprobates and religious people, all are under sin. Notice Romans 3, verse 9. He says, What then are we better than they? The Jew, is he better than the Gentile? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. Now at that time, just so that we understand, Jews and Gentiles would refer to everybody in the world. Uh, the Jew was the Jew. The Gentile was anybody who was not a Jew. And that's the rest of the world. And he says, we've proved both groups of people, which means everybody in the world, all are under sin. And notice what he quotes. Now, he's trying to convince the Jew here. That's really what he's trying to do. Because they're the ones that think that they don't need salvation. And he goes on to say this. He quotes for them the Old Testament. And he says this in verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. 
They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. Their poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their way. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So uh, Paul is getting, arriving at this point where he says that all are under sin. And he quotes Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 to show that this is not a New Testament doctrine, that all are under sin, but it's a timeless doctrine. It's not new to the New Testament. It's always been that way. And when Psalm 14 was written in Psalm 53, it applied, as we saw, to all men. Well, that's me and you. Therefore, when we read, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt, they have done abominable works, there is none that doeth good, we all have to raise our hands and say, that's us, all of us. Now, it may not be us now, but we have to admit it was us at some point. And also we know that this is, it can be us because the inclination itself is there. And we were reminded last week that the idea that there is no God is not this idea that somebody has come by virtue of the work of their intellect. They've come convinced that there is no God. No, that someone who in his heart, because the heart is desperately wicked above all things who can know it, the heart is deceitful, the heart yearns after sin, it craves sin, it wants to satisfy the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, that's what it chases after, and the heart at time wishes that there were no God, wishes that there were no restraints, because it wants to satisfy its lust. And we have to admit that that is in all of us. How does a person get to the place where they do, as we see in some morning, abominable works? It's the person that gets to the place in their heart where they say, I wish there were no God to keep me accountable. I wish there was no God to make me feel guilty. I wish there were no conscience. I wish there was no word of God. Because I want to live as I please. The opposite is exemplified, we might say, in the life of Joseph. You remember what he said? When Potiphar's wife wanted to lie with him, he says, I cannot do this great wickedness and sin against God. You see, at that moment, there was nothing in Joseph that said there is no God. The fact that there was a God was loud and clear. He didn't say, I can't do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar, my master. He said, I can't do this great wickedness and sin against God. So we're talking here about the wishes of the heart. And so although this verse is often applied to people who are atheists, I do not think that that is the primary application. I think this is representative of all men at some point whose heart yearn for no accountability, no judge, no day of judgment. By the way, there is a judgment for the Christian as well. That's called the judgment seat of Christ. 
It's not about salvation, but it's about our works of what sort they are. And they may will be burned, or they will come through the fire as precious gold and silver and, and those things. That person himself will be saved, but his works, if they're not what they ought to be, will be burned. Now let's return back to Psalm chapter 4, so we understand that as he says that uh, the idea of this psalm, if you would, in that psalm, there's not really a, uh, an answer because to all men who are all corrupt, and it seemed that there is no answer, well, the answer is actually found in the Bible. The answer is Jesus Christ. That He is the one who, the Bible says, became sin for us, He who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And in Romans chapter 3, that's exactly the context that Paul gives it. He says, there is none righteous. We prove that all are under sin, that by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in His sight. But then, right after that, He introduces Jesus Christ. And He says that our righteousness is found in the person of Christ. Why? Because through Christ we have the propitiation of our sins. Through Christ we have redemption through His blood. And at the end of the chapter He says, where is boasting then? He says, it is excluded by what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. It is important for us to see ourselves in Psalm 14 if we are ever going to come to Christ as our Savior. It is impossible for a man to come to a Savior who doesn't think he needs a Savior. And so in Psalm chapter 14, what I would like to do in this psalm is take the time to lay the groundwork for what are the identifying marks of a fool and what are the identifying marks of a wise man. And the reason why I say that as we look through this psalm and as we proceed through this psalm, in the first verse he lays out and says, here we have a fool. And here is uh, an introspection into the heart of a fool. His heart wishes there were no God. And here is his condition, verse 1. He is corrupt. That is his condition. And because he is corrupt, notice verse 1, they have done abominable works. So abominable works is the result of inward corruption. Notice this is inward corruption. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And therefore, because of that heart condition, he is entirely corrupt. And because he is corrupt, he does abominable works. To whom does that apply? Verse 1, there is none that doeth good. It applies to every man. So here's we have uh, the idea of a fool. Uh, what is the, his heart condition? He is corrupt, uh, corrupted, and he does abominable works. There is none that doeth good. I want to notice really several things. First of all, we see that he is corrupted, and that was really the lesson last week. But this week we're going to look at two more points, and that is he does not seek God rightly. He does not seek God rightly. And the third point will be that he possesses identifying marks. And so what I'm going to see here, we're going to show from God's Word, is that Uh, This man, who is a fool, who says this in his heart, can be identified by certain marks. And we might say these are the marks of a corrupted person. But the Bible also gives us the exact opposite. uh, In this psalm, by virtue of the Word of God, and what we know to be true in the Word of God, and to look at 
What are the identifying marks of the regenerated? Those who are regenerated by the Spirit of God. What are the identifying marks? So I want us to see here, first of all, that what we learn about this fool is that according to verse 1 and 2, he does not seek God. Notice verse 2 with me. The Bible says, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. Now, by the way, verse 2 is, here is God's interest. God's interest is in man. Aren't you glad about that? God is seeking. He's looking for men in the earth, and He's looking down with interest to see if there's anybody that understands, to see if there's anybody that is seeking God. And uh, lest we answer this question prematurely, the answer is given in verse 3. They are all gone aside. None is seeking God. None understands. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So here's what we know about this fool, which in a sense represents all of us in his natural state, uh, that he does not seek God. Uh, notice the emphasis, verse 1, there is none that doeth good. Verse 2, we see uh, if uh, God uh, see, uh, saw from heaven to see if there were any, any, anyone that did see God. And the answer is, they are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. So man... It's interesting here because we see a man who is a fool, right? In verse 1, he says there is no God. But then as God looks down, he sees, is there anybody seeking God? Now, the question might be for us, well, there are people today who right, believe in God and who seek after God. There are many people who are religious, but yet the Bible says there is none that seeketh after God. So what we understand here is that man, although... Wicked is nonetheless a religious being. In other words, in we might put it this way, in a corrupted sense, he does see God, but he doesn't understand. That's what verse 2 says. Is there anybody that understands? You see, he seems to seek God. He gives the impression that he is seeking God, but his heart says something else. That's really the thrust of this psalm. His heart says one thing, but then there's some outward activity, but yet inwardly he's corrupt. By the way, that was the trouble when uh, uh, Paul deals with the Jews in the book of Romans in chapter 2. That's what he's dealing with. He says you have everything right on the outward, and you're religious, and you're good, and you're moral, but your inside is corrupted. You're just like the Gentiles. That's what he sought to prove to them. So... How do men seek God today, and how did they seek God then? We might say that men did not seek God sincerely. And we could go through all the Bible and find many examples of men who did not seek God sincerely. Remember what God says, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Some men do not seek God exclusively. That's why God said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Why? Because men would like to add a god to another god. And so God is not exclusive. So they may seek God, but God is not exclusive. And in that sense, they're not seeking God. Because God 
must be exclusive. Uh, men often do not seek God truthfully. They have their ideas about God. Well, what, what you think about God and what I think about God is different, and so we all kind of seek God in our own way. Nonsense. God must be sought truthfully in truth. How do we know God? We know Him through His Word. There are men who seek God carelessly and loosely. I think of often many religious people who are involved specifically in rituals. They live uh, their own pleasure throughout the week as well. I'll go to church just to ease their conscience. They'll go to a confession booth. And we see here that there is kind of the sense of seeking God, but it's really careless and loose. Uh, Men seek God inconsistently. Do they not? Uh, They may seem to have an interest in God and then there's no interest in God and and maybe there's tragedy in their life and they begin to turn to God and to some higher power. But as soon as everything goes well, then forget God. They seek God inconsistently. Uh, Men seek God irreverently. We see that in our day. Where they bring God down to man's level and they make God into, excuse me, as a buddy or JC is in the house ridiculous they have some concept of God that is not the God of the Bible so when the Bible says when God looked down from heaven among the children of men to see if there's any that did understand and seek God notice we connect understanding with seeking God you cannot truly seek God without understanding You must understand to truly see God. And so here he says, there's no doubt at that time there were religious people. There were Jews at that time who would go and offer sacrifice to the temple. And he says, they're all corrupted. Outward religious activity does not redeem a man, does not make a man acceptable in the sight of God. Man is altogether filthy. He is altogether become unprofitable. There is absolutely none that seeketh after God. Not one. Notice, they're all gone aside, verse 3. By the way, the word all means whole and entire. The the word gone aside means to turn off away, uh, to depart, to rebel, to turn, to withdraw. That's what Isaiah 53 says. They are all together become filthy. The word all together means a unit, unitedly and alike. All men are alike in that way. All together uh, become filthy. Uh, the word filthy means uh, to, to muddle, to turn corrupt, to become filthy. He says, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Uh, none means nothing. It means not to exist. He says, this kind does not exist. Do you see the emphasis of verse 3? All gone aside. All together become filthy. None that doeth good. Unless we missed it, not one. So that we can't misinterpret the none and the all. And the all together. Not one. He says, not one man doeth good. Meaning, 
as in a man who does good deeds in order to please God. That does not please God. Do you remember what Jeremiah said? Our righteousness is filthy rags. Our attempts in our corrupted state to please God is absolutely ineffective at pleasing God. We cannot please God. Such a man that seeks God in understanding and in truth, here's what he says, cannot be found. So then he goes into verse 4 through verse 6. He gives us some identifying marks of someone who is in that condition. Someone who is corrupted. Someone who is, uh, has this uh, corrupted state who does not seek God with understanding what are the identifying marks. Well, let me give you five. The first one is, is this. Verse 4. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? Well, there it is. No, those are rhetorical questions. Don't they have... Well, the answer is no, they don't have knowledge. Uh, you see, the first mark of a fool is that they have no knowledge. Someone who is in a corrupted state, he does not know God. Now, he has some ideas about God, but you remember when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, the Gospel of John gives it to us very clearly. Jesus preached that very same message. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. You remember what Hebrews 1 says? God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past to the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. And then he goes on to give a fit description how Jesus Christ is the express image of the person of God. Philippians chapter, uh, uh, chapter 2 verse 5 uh, says that, Let this mind be new which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow with things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so here's the truth. There is really tr no true knowledge of God without Jesus Christ. Those who are fools are those who have no knowledge. They have no knowledge. There's a lot of religion today. A lot of people who think that they are good people. In the sense that they are moral people and their idea is that that is what pleases God and they have no knowledge of the truth. They do not understand that righteousness does not come by good works, but it comes by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ upon their account. 
That's the only way. That's why Jesus made it very clear. I am the way, he said, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There is no other way. There is one God, no one else, and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is no other way. And so they have no knowledge. There's a second identifying mark of those who are fools. Mark 2 is, they are indifferent toward God's people. Do you notice what he says in verse 4? Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread? Now, there's several ways you could take that, but notice eating bread was the most common thing that people did at that time. It was the most common resource. And so they eat up bread... They're kind of indifferent. That's part of their daily life. They do this every day. And they they grind the bread and they chew the bread. And they really have no regard. They don't give much thought to the bread. It's just something that they do every day. And so what we see here is that these people who are uh, have no knowledge, they are also indifferent towards those who identify with as God's people. They don't want to be part of a group that worships God. They don't want to be part of a group who lives for God. They don't want to be part of a group that says they are regenerated by the Spirit of God. They they just don't. They are completely indifferent toward God's people. There's another mark, a third mark, is they have no communion with God. Verse 4, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon God? They have no communion with God. They don't speak to God. There's no fellowship between them and God. By the way, they may have some religion. But those who come to God any other way but through Christ do not indeed speak to God. Now I know this may be a very severe thing to say of all the people who dedicate countless hours every day and they have this idea that they speak to God but it's heartbreaking that they don't know God. They don't know God. They call on someone, but it's not the God of the Bible. They have no communion with God. There's a fourth mark. Verse 5, they have no peace. Uh, Notice what the Bible says. There were they in great fear. For God is in the generation of the righteous. Now, the expression here, great fear, is a double emphasis, great and fear. The first part, great, really means to be startled, to be afraid, and to shake. The word fear means to be alarmed, to dread, to be in terror. That's what the Bible says. And so the Bible says, there were they. Who? The fool. The one who says there is no God. The one who maybe pretends to see God, but he doesn't understand. He has no knowledge. He is indifferent to the people of God. He has no communion with God. That same group of people has no peace. They go through this life with fear and dread. They even may be religious, but there is no peace. There's a fifth identifying mark. And that is, they ridicule the humble. Do you notice at the end of uh, or verse 6, he says, Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor, because the Lord is his 
refuge. They ridicule the humble. The word shame there means to make someone to pale, to make someone ashamed, to try to confound someone. And so the idea is that they want the people to hide. Uh, They want the people to be ashamed to speak. Uh, They want these people to be held in contempt by society. You have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. They ridicule the humble. He, who's the humble? The Psalms, as I've referred to, the book of Psalms, when it mentions the poor, it's a reference to the person who is dependent on God. Right? Jesus preached out on the Sermon on the Mount. Very first uh, uh, beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. That's the person who is completely dependent upon God. The person who recognizes that there are absolutely nothing without God. And so those people are ridiculed. They're made to be ashamed. The Bible says the last days will be described as men who call good evil and evil good. We live in that day. And the Christian constantly is being ridiculed for stating the obvious the truthful, the godly, the righteous. And by the way, it's worked quite well. Christians, we don't want to offend anymore. We don't want to say the truth because it might cause somebody to be offended. And we have to understand that that is a mark of a fool. What are the five marks? They have no knowledge. They are indifferent towards God's people. They have no communion with God. They have no peace. By the way, when I say they have no communion with God, is it interesting that in our country, the people who are advocating for all kinds of filth, inappropriateness, and the agenda that is ungodly claim to be some Christians? People in our Congress who's passed ungodly laws uh, uh, on abortion and all the things that are really ungodly will say, I'm a good Catholic. I'm a good Christian. And they'll fill in the blank. They claim to know God. They have no knowledge of God. But can I say also that they have no peace? They have no peace. And they ridicule the humble. These are the marks of the person who is in a corrupted state. The one whose heart continues to say, there is no God. There is no God. I wish that there were no accountability. I wish that there were no conscience. I wish that I could just live as I please. And God at times may say, you want to live as you please, I'll turn you over yourself without any restraint to yourself. These are the marks of a fool. But what are the marks of the wise? Now here he calls the fool, so I have to say the wise, but we might say those fools are in a corrupted state. Now by the way, this chapter refers to every one of us in our natural condition. That's all of us. Romans 3 makes that very clear. We prove both Jews and Gentiles, they're all under sin. We all need Jesus Christ. We're all uh, at the same level at the foot of the cross. Nobody starts on a higher level than anybody else. We are all in a corrupted state. How? What are the identifying marks of what I would refer to not as a corrupted state, we already saw those marks, but of a regenerated state? 
Doesn't the New Testament says that all they who are in Christ are new creatures? Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So all I'd like to do here is take this psalm to look at the marks of the fool, the corrupted, and to do the reverse. And we're going to find that it actually agrees with the New Testament marks of a believer. You remember what the first mark of the fool was? They have no knowledge. Well, what is the mark of the regenerated? They have knowledge. Turn with me to 1 John. 1 John and chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Now let me make uh, the statement. Knowledge, true knowledge, finds its source in the Word of God. And knowledge is retained and implemented in the fear of God. Let me say that again. Knowledge, true knowledge, finds its source in the Word of God. And that same knowledge is retained and implemented in the fear of God. You remember what Proverbs says? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. So notice with me 1 John 1. 1 John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled the word of life. For the life was manifested. By the way, we're talking here about Jesus Christ. He is the word of life. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was what, what was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 14 it says, And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, the Word of life. For the life was, verse 2, was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that Eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest unto us. You see, eternal life which we did not possess, which we were aliens to. God sent His Son so that we could be partakers of eternal life which was with the Father. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, there go we receive knowledge. Declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of Him. And declare unto you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Here's what has been declared. We have received knowledge of the truth. Into chapter 2 verse 3. He says, And hereby we know that we know Him. <laughs> if we keep His commandments. Go to chapter five, uh, verse 5 of chapter 2. But whoso keepeth His word, in Him verily the love of God is perfected. Hereby know we that we are in Him. Chapter 4, notice verse 13. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him, and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. And then chapter 5 and verse 20. Notice. And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding. You remember what the trouble is with the fool? He has no understanding. He does not see God. He has no knowledge. But here we have uh, noticed the Son of God has come and therefore we ha has given us understanding that we may know Him that is true. And we are in Him that is true. Even in His Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. 
That's the knowledge. You see, the, the man who is regenerated has that knowledge. That's why he says, no man that says that Jesus Christ is not, that God has not come in the flesh, does not know God. He may be religious, but he does not know God. He does not possess true knowledge. So the regenerated have knowledge. Do you have knowledge today that Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid for your sin debt in full? And then have you trusted Him as your Savior? If you have that knowledge of God through Christ, you have knowledge that the majority of the world doesn't have. There's a, remember the second mark of a fool is they are indifferent toward God's, towards God's people. They chew up just like bread, the people of God. Well, notice what 1 John 2, 7 tells us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye have from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh not in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness has blinded his eyes. Here's how we know that uh, we are no longer corrupted, is we have love towards God's people, and we love the fellowship of God's people. Those who are corrupted don't like God's people. As a matter of fact, when God's people come around, they cringe. They walk away. They avoid. But those who are regenerated love the presence of God's people. They have knowledge. They have a love towards God's people in fellowship. What was the third mark of a fool? They have no communion with God. What is the mark of the regenerated? They cultivate communion with God. Go back to John, uh, 1 John 1. And notice verse 5. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. See, here's one evidence. The evidence of someone who is regenerated is not someone who does not sin. It is someone that when he does sin, he gets it right with God. That's, by the way, a spiritual man. Sometimes if we're not careful, we might try to act all spiritual as if we never do anything wrong. Be careful. If we say we have no sin, we make God a liar. We must be honest with God. And when we do sin, here's the wonderful thing, the wonderful verse. So, Pastor, I sin and I sin and I sin and I sin and I sin again. What do I do? Keep confessing your sin. I do it too often. Do you confess your sin as often as you violate God's commands? There's something about the sensitivity to sin that we have to cultivate in our lives. And the more we cultivate that, the more holy we will be. You see, going on to perfection and becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ is learning 
to confess our sin again and again and again and again and again and not to pretend that we have fellowship and we walk in darkness. See, someone who is regenerate is cultivating communion with God. By the way, that's what we had a few weeks ago, the Lord's Supper. That's why we do the Lord's Supper. We're, we're declaring as individual believers that we are in communion with God. What a sobering thing. What was the fourth mark of the fool? They have no peace. <laughs> what is the mark of the regenerated? They have peace. They not only have peace with God, but they have the peace of God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Why? Because our sins have been forgiven. He had said in chapter 4, Blessed is the man whose iniquity has been covered. Blessed is the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. The man is justified. He has peace with God. Aren't you glad today that there's nothing that you and I could do to procure, to earn peace with God, but Jesus Christ did it for us. On our behalf, He took our sins in His own body, and He died. The wrath of God was poured on Him, and He died in our place. And if we believe by faith that He did that for us, and He died, and He rose again, we get His righteousness by faith. And therefore we can have peace with God. But Philippians chapter 4 also says that we can have the peace of God. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God. Which passeth all understanding. Shall keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He says later, and the God of peace be with you. You see, that's the mark of the regenerated. He has peace with God and he has the peace of God in his life. The opposite is true of those who are corrupted. There is one more mark on the fool. They ridicule the humble. But you remember what he said about that? He said, ye have shamed the counsel of the poor. Where do the poor get their counsel from? The Lord. Ye have shamed the counsel. Ye have shamed what God, what they believe about God, what they believe about the truth. Yet you're, you're trying to silence them. Isn't that what they're trying to do? Ye have shamed the... You're trying to get the poor to be quiet. You're trying to get... Uh, the, you're trying to erase... You don't want truth anymore. You don't want the truth. Who bears today the truth of God? We have His truth in His Word. But who bears it? Who carries the truth of God today? It's the Christian who proclaims it. So the mark of the fool is the one who ridicules the humble. The mark of the one who is regenerated is the man who speaks that which he has received. He is not shamed. The Bible says, Whosoever believeth on the Lord Jesus Christ shall not be ashamed. And while the world tries to ridicule it, the Christian keeps speaking. He, what does the New Testament, what's the word in the book of Acts? Ye are witnesses. And you remember when they were ridiculed and shamed? Oh, 
They are ignorant. Peter and John, they're ignorant. They don't know. what They haven't been educated like we have. You can continue to do what you do, Peter and John, but you cannot teach and preach in the name of Jesus Christ. And you remember what they say? We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. For there is none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. We cannot but speak. It is a mark of a man who is regenerated by the Spirit of God. So you notice these two things. The man who is in a corrupted state has identifying marks. The man who is regenerated also has identifying marks. Let me ask you this in all soberness tonight. Do you have those identifying marks of the regenerated? Or is your life defined by the marks of a fool? The last verse, let's return, we'll be done with the last verse, Psalm 14 and verse 7. He says in verse 7, Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. Now I'm thinking about the time of this was written by David. They weren't in captivity. Captivity, captivity comes later, does it not? Uh, it comes after Solomon, the kingdom split, and then 19 kings in the north, 19 kings in the south. The northern kingdom was taken captivity by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom was taken captivity by the Babylonians, and so on. And so that was, but here we're in David's time. But I want you to notice here, if we think about what he's writing about here, Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people. The captivity of his people. I'm reminded of what the Lord did for Job. After all of the questions and the conversations, Job 42.10 says this, And the Lord turned the captivity of Job. When he prayed for his friends, also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. You Sometimes we think, oh, that's the national captivity of Jacob. He's talking here about individuals. And you could say the groups of those who've been shamed, the identify marks of the fools. We know by assumption in the New Testament that there's identifying marks of the regenerate. But I, I wonder how many of us are in captivity Job was trying to figure things out in his life. And God, after all was done, God spoke. And remember what, you remember what Job said? <laughs> uh, God had said to Job, um, where were you when I did this and this and this? Remember Job says, I, I can't speak. I'm going to put my hand over my mouth. I'm not going to speak. But there's one thing that Job did. We know he, he was not... Chasing of the Lord for his sin. I don't believe that. He was a man of integrity. The Bible makes that very clear. His friends thought he had sinned. And... But you know what Job does at the end? He says, I repent 
in dust and ashes. And he says, I had known you by the hearing of the ear. He says, but now mine eye seeth thee. Why did Job go through this trial, through this difficulty? So that Job would learn. Now there's many things, but, but ultimately so that Job would learn that his life needed to revolve around God. He didn't do anything wrong. That's not why that happened. Not because he did anything wrong. It happened and God used the evil intentions of Satan who thought that he would curse God. He used his evil intentions and turned it so that Job would learn and know God in a greater way than he did before. You see, I think more important than maybe the national captivity of Israel is what God does in our own lives personally, as He did in the life of Job. And rejoice of thinking of where we were. This psalm represents all of us. And we may apply this to our salvation that God has turned our captivity. We've been redeemed. We're saved by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful thing. But in our lives today... God wants to deliver us from our captivities that we experience in this life. And it could be the captivity, if we apply this, I'm not going to go up, my time is already up. But think about, well, I don't want, I want, I don't want to speak and I don't, I don't want to be a witness. If that's you, you're in captivity. So I, I, I'm, going to, I'm shamed. And as a Christian, I don't know if I could say, if I say something, I, I feel that it's not going to, maybe you're in captivity. Can I say that the Lord can deliver you from that captivity? I'm reminded of the church in Acts when they were persecuted. They were told that Paul and John were released to go back to their own company in Acts chapter 4. And you remember, they went back to their own company and they said, Here's what they've said to us. We can't teach and preach in the name of Jesus Christ anymore. And so let's all pray together. And you remember what they prayed for? They prayed a great declaration about how great God was. And at the end, there was one request. Give us boldness that we may speak thy word without fear. And the very next verse, and they spake the word with boldness. God gave them exactly what they asked for. In that sense, God can deliver us from that captivity of fear, shame, and give us boldness.